Welcome to a filling station just south of London in the UK. I'm here filling the tank in my car. Nothing unusual so far. However, the car I'm driving is unusual. It's the Toyota Mirai and I'm filling it with hydrogen. I'm Kunal Datta and this is the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. In this series, we're finding out how the world will meet its energy challenges of the future. And today I've left the studio and I'm getting behind the wheel to find out about the possibilities of hydrogen fuel. Now, when you think of alternatives to petrol and diesel, the chances are electric vehicles at the front of your mind. And that's not that surprising. Today, there are three million electric cars on the world's roads. But battery technology is far from perfect. Range anxiety and battery life are among the many issues, and refilling isn't as quick and simple as some of the traditional options. So could there be an alternative? Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, and when it's produced using renewable energy such as wind and solar power, it creates virtually no greenhouse gas emissions. So why aren't we all driving hydrogen cars? And why is this filling station just one of so few in London? Let's start with the test drive. John Hunt from Toyota is going to take me out. So if you think about hydrogen, so 75% of the universe's mass is hydrogen. And hydrogen is what powers the sun. The sun is what powers the earth. As the sun is run by hydrogen, we can extract the hydrogen ourselves from different sources. We can use it then in heat, we can use it in power, we can use it as transport, we can use it as feedstock for industry, we can use it for carbon capture. So it has the potential to really change the world beyond anything we've ever seen before. So hybrid combination of batteries and fuel is now seen on the roads pretty much everywhere. How long do you think it'll take for hydrogen cars to take off in the same way? So it's 21 years since we introduced Prius. 21 uh, years since Prius came yeah. oh. And development of that was some 20-odd years before that. So hybrid development to what I would now say is for us certainly in Toyota where it's 50% of our sales mix is mainstream so it has taken 40 years to take this technology from the drawing board to make it mainstream but in doing so what we've done is refine the powertrain so the electrics the drivetrain the battery that's in the vehicle to such a degree that we're confident it can be used in a lot of different models and very easily in different areas so the constraint at the moment will be a combination of the fact that you have limited infrastructure so you'll need that to to evolve so as that evolves we'll get more vehicles all sounds very promising should we take a uh, test drive yep sure let's go out all right so we are now inside the toyota mirai let's switch on the power so we're going to go right and where we're going to go to is we're going to go to the shell station at cobham the driving experience feels very smooth what's actually happening inside it's um, using air and using the oxygen in air to combine with the pure hydrogen gas that we store on board. And it combines in the fuel cell in a chemical reaction. So this, the amazing thing is we're producing electricity from a chemical reaction between hydrogen and oxygen. So you start with water. You extract the hydrogen by putting energy into the water. And that energy is stored in the hydrogen. You're putting it through the fuel cell, which releases the energy and recreates the water you started with. Nothing is lost. 
In this car, it takes, if you started the process overall, to make the five kilos of hydrogen that drives this car, you need about 50 litres of water. So from 50 litres of water, you extract five kilos of hydrogen. You put it into your car and you drive for 300 miles and the only thing that comes out is 50 litres of water that you started with. And we're just driving through a lovely uh, English country lane. Um, we've passed a service station on the left, um, but presumably that doesn't sell uh, hydrogen yet, so we're going to one that does. John, the chicken and egg scenario. If we don't have enough places that uh, offer hydrogen, how's the car going to ever sort of take off? Yes, there is obviously a need for infrastructure, but it's probably less than you might expect. I mean, clearly with normal vehicles, we had no infrastructure when we first um, brought the cars to the road. You bought your petrol from a chemist. Over the years, you have more and more petrol stations, and cars generally, until relatively recently, had a short um, range, so maybe a few hundred miles. So as a result, you had a high density of fuel stations, and today I think we've got, you know, towards... Uh, 7,000 petrol forecourts probably in the UK. So we're just coming up to one of the few hydrogen filling stations in London. This one's in Cobham and is a shell garage. A lot of um, traffic and about five different lanes of cars refuelling on more traditional fuels. Here, right at the end, is the hydrogen section. It's fair to say it's fairly sparse. We are the only car parked up here at the moment, but it really gives you an indication of what the forecourts of the future might look like. Here in the UK, the government is working with a consortium to improve access to hydrogen infrastructure. That's managed by Element Energy, a UK-based low-carbon energy consultancy. Ben Madden is its director, and I met him at his office to find out more about the progress being made. In 2003, and well, in, in that period, just as around the start of this millennium, there were a lot of big advances in fuel cell technology, uh, which got a lot of, I guess, technology advocates very excited. And they started putting the technology into vehicles and trying to prove that they could work. This is fuel cells. Fu sorry, this is fuel cells that could use hydrogen. Yeah. And they quickly discovered that those vehicles were not giving the reliability that they needed. So they could make them work for the one-off demonstration in front of the chief executive. But there are all sorts of stories about how then they'd get around the corner and sort of push them out of the way <laughs> as, as the vehicles just never quite made it. So they effectively right. they weren't able to get the reliability out of the fuel cell. I and mean, if you think about what a fuel cell is, it's a fairly complex piece of chemistry which needs to happen on the surface of a film to react hydrogen and oxygen in a careful way. And, and essentially the, the catalysis and the surface science around that weren't mature enough. And it basically took another 15 years for that to get properly developed to the point where today the buses that are running around the streets of London have uh, over 30,000 hours of uh, life on some of those fuel cells. So on this podcast series, we've been looking at future forms of energy. And I must say it's uh, apparent very quickly how much uh, excitement there is around battery technology. Yeah. Is hydrogen the poorer cousin? At the moment, I think it's certainly the case that hydrogen feels like the poorer cousin. Um, an awful lot of the attention of politicians and investors is being directed at the battery option. Why is that? I think it's because it's a technology that's really here and now. We have it today. You can go out and buy a Tesla car or, in fact, battery electric buses, and they, they do a decent job. So because it's here and now, that tends to suck politicians and investors' attention to that technology. Hydrogen technology is perhaps four to five years behind in terms of the development cycle. And that 
takes investors and politicians' attention away from those kind of technologies. Scaling up, making this technology actually have sort of the sort of traction that it needs in order to sort of change economies and the way we travel. That seems to have been a, um, a challenge so far. We were speaking to various people um, who would describe it as a chicken and egg problem, right? Unless you have the infrastructure to refuel a hydrogen car, you're not going to buy one. How do you do that? I mean, it's an enormous asking, isn't it? Yeah, and to be honest, it's what we spend most of our time worrying about. I guess, firstly, just maybe making the positive point, which is that hydrogen is going to scale really well once you get over this initial challenge that you're talking about. So basically every piece of kit involved in, in in the hydrogen production chain gets cheaper as the amount of throughput of hydrogen goes up. So as we start talking about thousands of buses or hundreds of thousands of cars, then the whole hydrogen system becomes an awful lot easier to implement. So there's a kind of a, a nirvana out there for mm. hydrogen. Uh, Why does it become easier to implement? Because surely you need more fueling stations and things like that. I think the, the way to think about it, if take fueling station as a good example. Um, a typical fueling station cost, might cost some one to two million pounds to implement. So that's an enormous capital burden yeah. uh, in order to just get it off the ground. So you can imagine if you're just fueling a few cars at that station, you're getting killed economically. Mm. Whereas if you're able to put thousands of cars through that station, those capital problems start to disappear and you can start to afford the cost of the station and therefore the cost of the hydrogen that comes out of the station. And you see those kinds of economies of scale all the way through the hydrogen supply chain. Are there any countries or uh, areas of the world to point to where hydrogen is um, making a tangible difference in the energy system? We should certainly look at, let's say, California. In California, there are thousands of fuel cell vehicles on the road being served by a fleet of some tens of refueling stations. And and there you already see fully loaded fueling stations. I'm, I'm sure Shell could explain about their site at Torrance which is effectively having to upgrade almost on a, it seems on a six monthly basis mm. as the demand at that station um, grows. And why is, what, what's driving that? So in California, they, I, they've made a, a politically wise decision to implement these zero emission mandates. Mm. So basically to sell any car in the state, you have to um, have a certain fraction of your fleet as zero emission. And that creates a massive driver for all of the car companies to provide zero emission options, including the fuel cell option. And that's essentially created the early market demand for hydrogen vehicles. So once again, it falls on policymakers to actually implement something that will spark this sort of Absolutely. I mean, pretty much the whole of the energy transition relies on policy action. And I think anyone who doesn't think that is kidding themselves. The safety question. Hydrogen. Is it safe? (laughs) Um, Well, I think with any fuel, you can't make a statement, it is safe. Uh, The question is, can I, are there a set of risks? Can they be managed? Um, So, you know, just like any fuel, you have a lot of energy in a small space and you can have problems with batteries, you can have problems with diesel and you can have problems with petrol. And of course, you can have problems with hydrogen. If, If hydrogen leaks and it gets mixed with air, then it can create a flammable or even an explosive atmosphere. So the challenge is, managing those risks and um, if the question is can those risks be managed I guess you could point at the evidence which is that for example in the US there are 20,000 forklifts um, using hydrogen fuel cells indoors Um, I think I've come across one reported incident uh, for for those vehicles in, in the whole time they've been used so hydrogen is stored at high pressure in big composite vessels you can shoot bullets at them you can crush them and they don't break and if you get them too hot, they have special devices in order to release the hydrogen safely. So a lot of engineering work has been done to make these products safe. And I think, I guess the greatest testament is very well-respected companies like Toyota being fully happy to 
plan a commercialization strategy around this technology in, in full assurance of their safety. It feels like there's something of a race at the moment of what will be the domineering low carbon energy source of the future. How confident are you? How hopeful are you that hydrogen will not be, say, the Betamax of this energy race? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I mean, how how confident am I? I'm very confident in the technology itself and the economics of the technology. As I said, once we reach this sort of holy point of scale. But the risk is that politicians and society's attention is diverted to the here and now. And and therefore, that's where all of the effort goes. And effectively, hydrogen becomes the poor cousin and never really sees the investment that's required to reach that scale. And and that's that I think is a very real risk. And it's something that people in the hydrogen sector are very aware of. And they're actively trying to combat. The solution will be getting these technologies out there in front of people and the business cases and really good commercial propositions around hydrogen being presented to decision makers and politicians across the world. Well, we're back here at the fueling station in southwest London, and I've been joined by Matthew Tipper, Vice President of New Fuels at Shell, Matt Rooney from the Institute of Mechanical Engineers, and of course, John Hunt. Matt, just give us some context here. Why was Shell so keen to get involved in hydrogen technology? So as we know, Shell is one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, and we're seeking to decarbonize our product offer. And as a gas, hydrogen is is one of the products where we think we can play a major role in the energy transition. And um, where does hydrogen sit alongside other fuels, new fuels? So in the new fuels business, we um, invest in uh, electricity for battery electric vehicles. Uh, We create liquid fuels, biofuels and synthetic fuels. And clearly hydrogen, along with uh, methane or natural gas for transport, sits there's a molecular fuel uh, that has high energy density but is also capable of very very low carbon emissions and we've had to drive here today to a part of south london in order to get some hydrogen how quickly is that going to scale up when will we see more fueling stations like this around the country and indeed the world so you know hydrogen is still a relatively niche product So the way we roll that out successfully is by concentrating in particular areas, often cities. So we have a growing network of stations in Germany, for example, uh, here in the southeast of England and in parts of the world like Vancouver, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Let's bring in Matt Rooney. Scale, scaling up, trying to make this more available to uh, the country. What's your sort of view on this? How, How will it happen? Well, you can produce hydrogen in many different ways, but the main way to scale it up quickly is using existing methods, which is steam methane reformation of natural gas. The problem with this is you have a byproduct of carbon dioxide. So in order to make this a a low carbon process, you have to capture that carbon dioxide, compress it and transport it offshore. And what the government needs to do is develop uh, CCS, carbon capture and storage clusters around the country in order to scale up the production. And hydrogen isn't just for transport. It's a very versatile fuel. It can be used to heat our homes. It can be used in heavy industry. And of course, it can be used for uh, all sorts of transportation fuels. So there's, uh, there is more to it than just transport. 
Yes, one of the advantages of hydrogen is its versatility. It can be used in virtually every part of our energy system. And uh, that's one way to scale it up, is to develop clusters where it can be used in one region of the country for transport, for heating and for heavy industry. John Hunt, we've seen poster boys like Elon Musk making battery technology and battery cars famous. Does hydrogen need something like that? Is this the way Toyota will really get this thing selling? As more people experience the technology, the customer will decide. And that's the main thing. You don't need a uh, particular celebrity to do that. Why is so much of the conversation always uh, around battery technology? Why isn't this getting a little bit more profile? It seems, is it the poorer cousin? Matt Rooney. Well, battery technology, battery electric vehicles have taken off because you can purchase a battery electric vehicle and charge it in your home. You can't have a hydrogen refueling station at your home. So there's a chicken and an egg problem with hydrogen where nobody will buy the cars before the refueling stations are are widespread and nobody will build the refueling stations before the vehicles are, there's a market for the vehicles. But we, we think in my research, and my policy research, we recommend that the government should incentivize a network of strategic hydrogen refueling stations around the country for longer distance vehicles like HGVs and also to have trials with things like buses, taxis and even trains. With these things, if you have fleets, they travel from point to point. You don't need to roll out a, a network of hydrogen refueling stations. You just need the one or two and you can bring all your vehicles back to that one point and refuel them there. Yes, I think there's a timing issue here. Lithium-ion technology was developed ever since the 1970s. You know, it's rolled out in mobile phones and laptops. Um, It is suited to light-duty vehicles, um, and it's been uh, adapted and adopted into into that sector. Um, But it has its limitations as a technology. You know, if we're going to decarbonize uh, much bigger vehicles, the trucks, trains ferries and ships for example potentially aviation we're going to need different solutions and that's where hydrogen is going to play i believe can we do it though can we do it inside that 2050 paris time frame or is this something that just won't scale up in time well our, you know one of our scenarios our most ambitious scenario um we call sky uh, addresses that that very question and for sure to meet targets as ambitious as set in the Paris summit we're going to require all options and uh, that is going to require hydrogen for sure. Great let's try something very quickly. Um, John Hunt you're the chicken you've got the car. Matthew Tiffer you're the egg you've got the infrastructure. Can you two just talk to each other and tell each other what you want to see in order to get traction? So how do you get more cars on the road and how do you get more infrastructure up and running and buy-in? I mean, certainly what we're seeing already is a close collaboration. It's about developing hubs and we're delivering cars to customers who will use the stations that are being built by Shell. And it's that collaboration, I believe, that will see the growth. More collaboration? No, I think that's right. It's coordination in both in time and, and in space. We need to be delivering vehicles and refueling infrastructure at more or less the same time in an absolutely the same places. And if we, if we get that wrong, we're in trouble. If we get that right, then we have a business case. Matt Rooney, you're an independent observer to this. Tell us what they need. What needs to happen to really get this 
Well, I think if we look internationally, if, if you scale up hydrogens, for example, there's an exciting uh, project just being developed in, a, in Japan with Australia. So they're going to produce hydrogen from coal in Australia, capture the carbon dioxide from that process and ship the hydrogen all the way from Australia to Japan for use in in vehicles like the the Toyota right here. So if we can scale up the production, I think that will help. It will bring down the cost of the hydrogen and more people will buy the vehicles. Well, it's coming to evening here and it's getting rather cold. So uh, let's wrap up there. Uh, Matthew Tipper, VP of New Fuels at Shell. Matt Rooney from the Institute of Mechanical Engineers and John Hunt, Manager of Alternative Fuels at Toyota. Thank you very much. Right then, the big test of all this these cars emit nothing except water. Can we drink it? Oh, we can give it a go. Let me try and uh, get some out. That's it. Wow, okay, so here it is. Oh, it slightly, feels slightly warm. Take a glug. Actually, that does taste like water. Bottled water. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> The next subject we'll be tackling on the Energy Podcast will be carbon capture and storage. We'll be finding out whether this technology really has the potential to dramatically reduce our carbon emissions. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production, and I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not the Shell Group or its affiliates. Please do subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review. In the meantime, from me, Kunal Dutta, it's thank you for listening and goodbye.